Hello, I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. This podcast is brought to you by RAIN Worldview, the premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Find out how RAIN can help you stay ahead of global events at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to RAIN's Essential Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Ryan Boll, in for Emily Donahue this week. Here with me today is Scott Cardus, one of our Asia-Pacific analysts. Thanks for joining me, Scott. Nice to be here, Ryan. So today we're talking about South Korean and Japanese relations, obviously a relationship that's had plenty of its ups and downs and, and plenty of tension throughout the years. So Scott, why don't you start us off with the status of the relationship between Tokyo and Seoul and, and what's being done to repair this relationship? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Ryan, so the Japanese and South Korean relations, as you mentioned, do go up and down a lot. And as of late for the past, roughly about the past five, seven years, have been on very much a downtrend. Um, in 2015, the under former President Park Geun-hye, Japanese officials and South Korean officials supposedly reached an agreement where Japan paid $8.3 million to surviving victims of Japanese World War II wartime uh, labor and human rights violations. And in 2017, South Korean courts rejected this and said that, you know, there still needs to be some other legal legal maneuvering needs to be done. Um, the, the decision isn't truly legally binding under South Korean courts and law, so the South Korean plaintiffs can still sue Japanese companies like Mitsubishi. Then the Japanese companies refused, saying that they signed this treaty in, or another deal in 2015, and they even cited the 1965 Treaty of Basic Relations. So they are saying this, you shouldn't be able to sue us. This should be done. And it kind of started a trade war that's been going on to this day where Japan stopped the export of certain chemicals that are needed for South Korea's uh, semiconductor industry. And South Korea then removed Japan from the white list of very trusted co- uh, countries where they shared a lot of intelligence rapidly. So they, they basically put up a lot of hurdles and roadblocks when dealing with each other. And this resulted in a lot of tourism decline, trade decline, and just all in all, the general social sentiment is for a lot of people, both countries just didn't like each other and still don't right now. But the relationship is warming. So as things are warming, you know, what does that kind of a warmer relationship really look like? Uh, what would it look like if, if they simply did, if they didn't have as many of these disputes? Well, if you have a warmer relationship, we won't suddenly see Japan and South Korea becoming best friends and treated allies. There's still way too many issues that need to be worked out between the two countries, and they're not going to be worked out, sadly say, they're not going to be worked out anytime soon. But what we would see is kind of a return back to a more standard uh, relationship with your neighbor. You'll see a lot of these barriers from trade for from Japanese firms to be relaxed, and you'll see a lot of the intelligence sharing from South Korea's side uh, to go back to where it was. And you'll likely see a lot of return of tourism, South Koreans being some of the highest number of tourists to Japan. And so, you know, a lot of places in Japan that rely on tourism have been really missing these tourists, obviously, and their money. So you will likely see return of tourism. And this won't happen overnight. This won't happen with the snap of fingers. But that's some of the uh, key things that we would see. And uh, what does a closer relationship mean for the United States as well as for the the whole region? Obviously, China is a major player that doesn't necessarily want to see these two countries being closer. The U.S. certainly does. Um, so how does that all factor in together? 
Well, uh, it's a very good thing you mentioned that. So for the U.S., I'll start with the United States. The United States would love to see South Korea and Japan become very, very good friends. And in the long term, I'm pretty sure the United States would love to see Japan and South Korea become treaty allies and form a proper trilateral alliance between the United States, Japan, and South Korea. This would allow the United States to reduce their own security burden in Northeast Asia, because right now there's roughly 70,000 troops stationed in Okinawa and 28,500 troops stationed in, in South Korean Peninsula. The United States would very much love to be able to not have to focus on being the middleman between these two countries and would love to see Japan and South Korea just work directly with each other. Um, Again, that's a much, much more long-term uh, scenario. But in the short term, the United States would definitely see a lot. Uh, it would make the United States position easier in Northeast Asia by having these two countries, two of the closest allies, cooperate and be far more friendly and less standoffish with each other in the political realm. With other countries, uh, you mentioned China. China would not and does not like to see Japan and South Korea becoming close. If they get too close, they run the risk of becoming uh, crossing one of the three no's that South, uh, China demanded of South Korea back in 2015 when South Korea installed some uh, anti-missile batteries. And the no is no trilateral alliance with the United States, Japan. And while, again, there won't be a sudden trilateral alliance when you move into a warmer relationship and you move in that direction, China's not going to be very pleased with that. Obviously, North Korea is the other question. North Korea does not want to see Japan and South Korea become friendly. North Korea still harbors a lot of the same grudges that South Koreans do with Japan over World War II wartime atrocities. And they are far more bellicose over their uh, disagreements. And they're, uh, they're far more bellicose with their disagreements. And they're far more vocal with their condemnation of Japanese uh, politicians right now doing contentious things such as visiting Yasukuni Shrine or whitewashing a lot of Japanese textbooks to remove Japan's role in World War II wartime atrocities. And obviously we have Russia is still active in, uh, in the Northeast Asia. While Russia is not the biggest player, Russia would definitely not like to see two very friendly countries with the United States becoming friendlier with each other because Russia and the West are not in agreement right now after the war in Ukraine. So a lot of these countries in Northeast Asia will not like to see this. There's not much that they can necessarily do, but we could see maybe Chinese politicians trying to find ways to slow the relationship from warming or even widen the gap if they can do so. Well, like I was uh, saying with you before we began recording the podcast, this is a relationship with so many ups and downs. It's very easy to lose track. So I'm, I'm glad, Scott, that you're tracking it for us and, and keeping us uh, current on, on the developments between Tokyo and Seoul. Yeah, gl glad to do this. Glad to, glad to watch this relationship. It's a very key relationship for the region and for the United States. Understanding geopolitics is critical to future planning, whether you run a multinational conglomerate or you're planning a trip to a place you've never been. Rain offers businesses a complete geopolitical intelligence solution with Worldview for Enterprise. Our app delivers forward-looking enterprise-level analysis and tools that enhance your ability to understand what happens next. Learn more at Rain's geopolitical intelligence solutions at rainnetwork.com.